Good morning, everybody. We are pretty full this morning, and if you have some seats in the middle and you are willing because you love Jesus and people to scoot toward the middle, we've been having some people still coming in, and so we just want to make sure as they come in they have room. So thank you if you're able to do that. We would really appreciate it. Uh, We're going to dive right into our study today uh, because we are looking in our study of Acts, this series called Sent at a Passage that spans across three different chapters, total 71 verses. And we're going to be looking this morning at a man who shows us the right way to live and die. His name is Stephen, and he was a remarkable man. He was the first Christian martyr But what may most be remarkable about him is this. He was just a common, ordinary Christ follower. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't a pastor. He was just a regular guy. But part of what Luke is showing us in his account is that it is because of people like Stephen that the church grows. Now, if you're here last week, you remember we talked about the explosive growth of the church of Jesus in these early days. It is now this huge movement. Scholars think that there could have been as many as 20,000 Christ followers there in Jerusalem. And Luke is about to kind of turn a corner here in his narrative. From this point, we're going to see the church beginning to expand around the world. Uh, The passage we're looking at today is going to open up the next stage of Luke's account of the church's growth. And I want you to kind of be aware of this. In chapters 6 through 12, Luke is going to be introducing us to four significant characters who are each going to represent a different important aspect of that expansion and growth. Let me just lay that out for you so you'll be aware of where we're headed. We're going to see in the next couple of weeks two remarkable Christ followers. First, Stephen the martyr. We'll look at him today. And then Philip the evangelist. We'll we'll look at him next week. We, We met them last week, but today and next week, we're going to learn more in depth about them. And after that, we're going to see two remarkable conversions. First, Saul the Pharisee, and then Cornelius the centurion. And what you're going to understand as we go through this, Luke is telling us that God has strategically used each one of these men. God is going to use Stephen's death to Jesus, before Jesus, uh, to profoundly impact a man named Saul, who is going to become Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. God is going to also use Stephen's death to push the church out of Jerusalem so that they would begin to go out into the world, into Judea, into Samaria. He's going to scatter them as they try to avoid persecution, and therefore they're going to begin to tell other people in these other places about Jesus. We're going to see that God is going to use Philip, and Philip's going to be the guy who first shares the good news with some new people groups, first with the despised Samaritans, and then he's going to be the man who shares with the Ethiopian eunuch who is the first African convert. And so we continue to see this expansion, this growth. God's going to then use Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles. We're going to see how how God turns this Jewish Pharisee's life upside down and makes him an apostle, one of the most important people really in all of world history. And then Cornelius, he will give us the story of the very first Gentile uh, to be converted and welcomed into the church. Now, this is where we're heading And you need to keep this kind of frame in mind if you're really going to understand what Luke is trying to tell us. With that, I want to turn back to Stephen. And one of the questions that church historians have always asked is, why did the early church grow 
in the way that it did. Uh, Kenneth Scott Latourette was a noted historian from Yale in the 20th century, and he wrote these words, Never in so short a time has any other religious faith, or for that matter, any other set of ideas, religious, political, or economic, without the aid of physical force or of social or cultural prestige, achieved so commanding a position in such an important culture. See, other movements, other religious faiths have expanded, but they've spread by conquest or by, by politics, but not Christianity. Just regular people used by God, they were the ones that changed the world. And so how did this happen and, and why? And we're going to find some answers to those questions in the life that Stephen lived. Now, I want you to write this down. Stephen has one principle that he lives by. It's the the principle that makes him the kind of person, as we saw last week, who can keep people together, who keeps the unity of the church. He's one person that keeps, the kind of person that keeps everything moving forward, as we're going to see today. And he's also the kind of person that you would probably like to be around because of this principle. Here's the principle that Stephen lived by. It's not about me. It's not about me. Stephen knew from start to finish in his life It's not about me. Keep that in mind as we dive into his story. We're going to begin in Acts 6, verse 8, and read verses 8 through 15. And it says this, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, when we met Stephen last week, We saw that he was giving leadership to this ministry in the early church to care for widows. But Luke tells us now he's also very busy, very active, telling people about Jesus. And Luke says that he was a man full of God's grace and power and that through that God used Stephen to do great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. God used this man to do miracles. And as he's out in the world serving and as he's out in this world uh, telling people about Jesus, he he encounters some Jewish people and they enter into a debate. And as they debate, these Jewish people that are from the Greek-speaking world find that they cannot stand up against the wisdom that the Holy Spirit has given Stephen. Now, instead of just admitting defeat, sometimes people do this. They're embarrassed because they've lost the debate, and so they, they just change the playing field. They, they move to slander. They find some men to falsely accuse Stephen of blasphemy. And Stephen ends up getting dragged before the Sanhedrin. This is the, the Jewish high court where he is accused of speaking against the temple, 
speaking against the law which God had given to the Jewish people. Now, you probably know these are extremely serious allegations. And to answer his accusers, Stephen preaches a sermon which we see in Acts chapter 7. It's actually the longest recorded sermon in Acts. And I think that's kind of interesting that Luke gives us a sermon that's the longest sermon that's preached by a layperson. See, you think I talk a long time, (laughs) but I think if you got up here, you would be here for a couple hours. I just don't know. But Stephen preaches this long sermon. And in this sermon, he makes three major points. He responds to these accusations by saying to these people, you claim to revere God's law and God's temple, and you're accusing me of blasphemy against God and against God's law and against God's temple. But the truth is this. You have put your trust in the temple instead of the God whose presence fills the entire earth, not just his temple. That's point one. He goes on and makes the second point. He says, you claim to love the law of Moses, but you've always disobeyed it. You've always resisted the prophets that God sent to call you to obedience. You say you revere the law. You don't even keep the law. And then the third point he makes is your real problem is you are trying to earn your way to God instead of trusting in God alone. He says, remember Moses, whom you claim to revere? Moses was the one who told you to pay attention to the prophet who would come. And I am telling you today, that prophet is Jesus of Nazareth. And what Stephen does is he just weaves these truths together as he gives this retelling of Israel's history, some of the most important Uh, events and epochs in Israel's history. And then he wraps his message up with this rousing word of encouragement. This is Acts 7, verse 51 and following. He says to the people, uh, this was so encouraging, he says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Hard, strong words. A stiff neck. This is a Jewish metaphor for someone who hardens their heart against God. And then he says, uncircumcised hearts. That's kind of crude, isn't it? What he's really saying is your body may show the sign that you're covenanted with God through circumcision, but that's just an external thing on the inside where it matters in your heart. You just do whatever it is you want to do. You do what your heart wants to do. You're just like your fathers. You've always resisted God. Verse 52, he says, Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Stephen says, You want the truth, you can't handle the truth. (laughs) That's what he's saying. Verse 54, when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. That, what was that like? Arr, 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 arr. <laughs> and now that I've done that, I want you to embarrass yourselves. Do the same thing. Gnash your teeth at the person next to you. Go ahead right now. I'm not going to move until you do. Got to do it. They were just angry. I mean, really, really angry. Uh, verse 55 says, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open 
and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, this is really incredible because in Israel, it was only the priests who could enter the place of God's glory, and they could only do that once a year through a very, very special ceremony. Now, Stephen, this regular guy, this layman, is saying, I see heaven open in front of me. He's not a priest. He's not even an apostle, just a regular guy. And what Luke is telling us in part is, in the church, when you're in Christ, everyone's a priest. Everyone has access to God. Everyone can commune directly with God. Every one of us can go straight into the very presence of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Verse 57. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. How many of you think that sounds just like your toddlers throwing a temper tantrum when they hear what they don't want to hear? They cover their ears. They start yelling so they can't hear anything else. Verse 58, they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's kind of a strange little detail. It's like, you know, watch our clothes. I don't know, hold our beer or something like that. Well, this Saul is going to undergo his own conversion in a couple of chapters. And God is going to change his name to Saul, uh, Paul. And he's getting introduced here so we know something about what comes later. One of the biggest influences on this young man Saul's life was seeing what happens to Stephen. Verse 59 says, While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. I want to show you this morning four principles that we learn from Stephen's life that tell us the right way to live and the right way to die. And again, we're just seeing this kind of profile of what's intended to be a picture of an ordinary Christian's life. Here's the first principle we see in his life that we should see in our life. Give your life to service. Stephen is introduced to us as a servant. He's given a job, and it's not glorious. He's waiting on tables for widows. And this is a man who's obviously a capable leader. He's a gifted theologian. He's a good preacher. But he doesn't say in Acts 6, 1, I'm going to need something a little more in line with my gifts than waiting on tables. He says, no, it's not about me. And if this is how I can serve the body of Christ, then I will gladly do it. And that service, we began to talk about this last week. It may have seemed insignificant. It had a huge effect on the church. Not only did he help preserve church unity, as we saw last week, his service also would lead to the conversion of many Jewish priests who were the primary enemies of the early Christians. His service and his work would end up leading to the conversion of the church's chief persecutor, Saul. You see, serving is the right way to live. Author Francis Schaeffer said a couple of decades ago, love on display is the church's most effective apologetic. Apologetic is just a word that means defense of the faith. And I want to emphasize this today because our desire at this church is to be a place characterized by its service. And if I could just commend you for a moment, you really are people that do that in so many ways. You know, over the years, so many of you, you have served faithfully and anonymously 
children here. You have served elderly people who can't be here. Over the years, you have fed people who had needs in their homes, and you have fed people in our community without a home. You have traveled, some of you, all the way across the country to serve victims of disaster. And so many times, so many of you have given your money away to help meet needs of people in hundreds of different ways. I could go on and on and on. There are many of you right now I know out in our communities, and you are serving, and none of us really know that you're doing it. You're just serving. You're just out there. And it's the right way to live. Service is something that also matters on Sundays. You know, when people come to our campus, one of our desires is that we want them to feel served the moment they get here. Now, George Barna is a Christian researcher. He does polls and studies. And a number of years ago, he did a study that said 70% of new people, when they visit a church, they decide whether or not they will come back to that church within seven minutes of arriving on the campus. That is way before they hear any music. It's way before they listen to any part of any message I preach. And one of the things I draw from that is if they don't come back, it is your fault. It's not mine. <laughs> See, we, we, we want everyone who shows up here to just feel that I'm loved and that God cares about me and that I matter. You know, one of the things I would just suggest to all of us, we're a big enough group that we see people all the time. Every Sunday we come and we don't know who they are, right? You should assume just in the way you interact with people that they're guests there for the first time. What I mean by that is just be friendly to everybody. Don't assume they know their way around. Don't assume they know anything. Just be friendly to them. Make them feel welcome. Just welcome everybody. Reach out to them. Help as you can. We, we just want this to be the way that this is here on our campus. And we want that to overflow out into the streets of our community just like it did here in Acts 6. And let me just add to this. This is going to become even more crucial as we move into a new auditorium at the end of this year. We're going to need to reach more and more people as we do this, and therefore we're going to need to be people who serve others more and more and more. Now, hundreds of years ago, close to the beginning of the church's life, there was a Roman emperor named Julian. He he became known as Julian the Apostate, and he was one of the fierce, fiercest persecutors of the church. And, and he wrote some letters that we still have to this day, and in one of them, he admitted and discussed this, quote, these infernal Galileans, that's Christians, the followers of the one from Galilee, these infernal Galileans feed our poor in addition to their own. That's what he saw early Christians doing. Historian Eberhard Arnold notes this, in the early years of the church, most astounding to the outside observer was the extent to which poverty was overcome in the vicinity of the communities. Christians spent more money in the streets than the followers of other religions spent in their temples. See, everyone in the church should serve. You say, well, how do you know where to serve? And we, we talk about this in one of our classes, Discovery 301, and there really are kind of like three tests that you can be guided by. You serve in places of skill, where you're gifted. You serve in places of passion, which is about where your heart is. And you serve in places of great need. And sometimes all three of those things come together. But have you ever noticed how often they don't? I'm going to comment on that last one. 
sometimes, maybe most of the time, we serve simply because there is a need. See, I'm not real sure that waiting on tables for widows was a passion or skill that Stephen had. Um, And I say that because while we do have a lot of people who serve, there are some of us who won't do much. And when you boil it down, it's just because it's not really that convenient or you kind of find yourself thinking that is sort of beneath me. Well, I don't think my talents or my teaching ability or my business skill or, you know, my like general awesomeness is really appreciated here around this place. And serving in the parking lot or helping take care of kids, that's pretty far below my talent level. I think I'm going to go somewhere else. And I hear somebody say that. I always say the same thing. Bye. You're welcome to go somewhere else. I mean, think about it in the context of this. Waiting tables probably felt below Stephen, but he did it because it needed to be done, right? And I can assure you that washing feet was well below Jesus' pay grade, amen? (laughs) I mean, Jesus didn't do that because he had some unique messianic skill in foot washing or because he had a special passion for washing feet. Oh, I never feel so alive as when I'm washing feet. He just did it because he wanted to serve. He just wanted to serve. And I want to say this to you. You should make room in your life, particularly here in the church, to do some things that don't necessarily thrill your soul just so that you can maintain this role of servant, just so you can build servanthood muscles up in your life. This is the way Stephen lived, and it's the right way for us to live too. Second thing I want you to see in Stephen's life that we should model in our lives as well, we need to let God's word shape our minds and our actions. Now, we we, we dove into this a little bit last week, And just be reminded, for the apostles to have filled their schedules, even with something good like taking care of widows, when the end would have been a disservice to the church because the church's greatest need is God's Word. Uh, Maybe you can think about it with this illustration. Uh, Just a week or so ago, we we were reminded of that terrible uh, earthquake in Haiti that took place eight years ago. Uh, maybe I'm sure you remember that. Now, imagine in the wake of that earthquake, you're an EMT and you go to Haiti and you want to help and people are there. They're laying on the streets. Many of them are about to die, but you also see all this rubble. And so you start helping to pick up rubble. You start helping to clear you know, space for, for people to move through the streets. That, that may seem like a good thing to do, but it's really not for you because you're one of the few people who is actually able to save people's lives. See, in the church, people who are skilled at teaching God's word, that is an act of service they can provide. And so for the apostles then to have gotten filled up their time just doing something else in the end would have been a disservice to the church. Now, that's the background to what I want to say in chapter 7. I've already mentioned that Stephen preaches in chapter 7 what really is the longest recorded sermon in Acts. And we're not going to be able to read that entire sermon that's like 50 verses long in Acts 7. And I would really encourage you to go and read it for yourself. But what I want you to know about it is that sermon is filled with the Bible. It's just filled with Scripture. Where where did Stephen get all that knowledge about the Word? Well, I think part of the answer is from hearing the apostles teach it. 
But I think you could say it more fully this way. Stephen devoted himself to the word in two ways. He first prioritized it by freeing the apostles up to teach the word, but then he also prioritized the word by learning it for himself. So here's my question to ask you today. Have you devoted yourself to the word? You you should write that question down on your notes. Have I devoted myself to God's word? Uh, Would you be ready to preach that kind of a sermon in your life? See, it's not enough just for you as part of a church family to free up pastors like me to teach. You also must prioritize in your life learning God's word. Become like Stephen because you don't know when you might be called on to give answers in places that your pastors won't be present. You need to learn God's word, study God's word, memorize God's word because the things that you don't have in your heart and mind are not going to be there when you need them. Be ready to be called out. Now, as I said, we don't have time to unpack all the details of Stephen's message, but I do want to give you a summary so that when you read it, you kind of have a map that you can use to walk through it. What's going on is this. He's been accused of blasphemy. And in this sermon, what he does is he turns the tables on his accusers. Stephen goes from the accused to the accuser. And he speaks to these Jewish leaders and shows that what he was teaching about Jesus is actually in line with God's plan for his people from the beginning and that they were the ones who were missing God's plan, just like their ancestors always had in the past. Stephen shows them that they didn't really understand the temple and that they were the ones who who weren't truly keeping the law, that they were the ones who were opposing God, not him. And here's how he does that. He, He looks at four major characters in Israel's history and connects them to four major historical epochs. He talks about Abraham and the patriarchal age, Joseph and the Egyptian exile, Moses and the period after the Exodus, and then David and Solomon's uh, period of being kings, the monarchy. And what he's doing in by telling about these four different sections of history is Stephen is showing them that God has never been about a place, but God has always been about God's presence with his people. He's showing them that it's never been about the law, but it's always been about a relationship with God that God's law represented. He's trying to make them see that what had gone wrong in Israel's history, that the people of Israel had repeatedly chosen their ways above God's ways, and that God had sent his only son, Jesus, into this world to show them the true way, the only way, which was God's way, which was the way back to God. And in doing this, Stephen displays this amazing uh, knowledge of God's word. You can tell as you read this that he's under this enormous pressure. I mean, you know this. We know he's about to die. He's under this enormous pressure, and yet he is free to share from the scriptures because he has read them and meditated on them and memorized them. God's word had shaped the way that he thought and now it was shaping the way that he lived. Do you understand that God's word is not just something you have for Sundays when you come to a place we call a church? God's word is meant to shape 
everything about the way you think and everything about the way you act. God's word is meant to shape the way you relate to your family. It's meant to shape the way you do your work. It's meant to shape the way you think about the issues in our culture and in our politics. It's meant to shape the way you think about economics. And I could just go on and on and on. Everything, God's word should give us the frame and the principles to understand the world and to live in this world. And there are so many of us who, who think God's word is just about the way we, we act and talk to a few people in our lives. We don't see it impacting the big issues. Stephen is telling us through his example that it's for everything. Is God's word shaping your mind and shaping your actions? This is the right way to live. The third thing that we see from Stephen's life is that we need to believe that God wants to use our life for his glory. I'm going to come back to this idea that Stephen was just an ordinary guy. And I want to say to you that God does his greatest work through ordinary people. Again, this, this longest sermon in the book of Acts is also the sermon with the most powerful effect, which is the conversion of Saul, who becomes the apostle Paul. I mean, just think of the eternal impact of what is happening, beginning to happen right here um, on this day. See, what is the Holy Spirit trying to show us through this? And I, I think it's, it's this. Ordinary people filled with the Spirit can do everything that the apostles can do. Maybe we'll bring it up to our day-to-day. Ordinary people in a church just like you, filled with the Spirit, you can do everything a pastor can do. That's what God wants you to see. God wants to use your life for his glory. And you know what? Sometimes you can do those things even better than a pastor can do. Now, I want to point you back to something Jesus said uh, shortly before he was crucified. It's in John 16, it's verse 7. It's one of the most amazing promises Jesus made. It's probably one of the most perplexing promises Jesus made. I still kind of wrestle with it myself in different ways. Here's what it is. Jesus says this. He says to his disciples, but in fact, it is best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate won't come. That's the Holy Spirit. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. See, here's what's being said. Jesus is telling his disciples that it would be better if he left them because only then could the Spirit come. Have you ever read that and thought to yourself, I don't know, Jesus. I'm not so sure about that. It kind of doesn't feel like the, the right thing, does it? To our advantage for Jesus not to be here? I mean, how many of you, let's quick survey here. How many of you, if you got the chance, you would take it to live with Jesus day in and day out for three years? Would you, would you do that? Not very many hands going up. This is not a very godly group of people. I, hmm. I'm have to think about that one. But I mean, just, just imagine that possibility. Imagine how awesome it would be if Jesus was on your ministry team. You're serving with him. It's like, you know, you're, you're, you're having a small group and you find that you're running out of chips and salsa and Jesus is there and it's like, bam! <laughs> Jesus multiplies the broken pieces. He throws in three kinds of salsa, mild, medium, and hot, and there's enough left over to fill 12 bowls more of chips. I mean, wow, having Jesus with you. Imagine you're, you're out somewhere and you have a theological question. Bam! Jesus answers. I mean, this is easy. He's right there. You can ask him. Imagine you have a headache. 
bam, Jesus makes it go away. I mean, he's just there with you all the time, take care of every need. Imagine your dog gets run over by a car. Bam, Jesus resurrects your dog back to life. You know, your cat gets run over. Jesus helps you dig a hole to bury the cat. What's really sad is that's all some of you are going to remember from this sermon. So how great would it be to have Jesus as our companion for like three years? And yet, Jesus himself said that the power of the Holy Spirit at work in ordinary believers would be greater than the presence of Jesus right beside us. And we see that in Stephen. See, it's kind of backwards to how we do church, right? We think church is about a bunch of people coming and observing the gifts of a few people. The Bible never says that. That, that keeps us so much from tapping into the real power and potential in the church. The New Testament just makes it clear the greatest miracles were supposed to happen, are supposed to happen through you, just like they did with Stephen. Do you realize there are so many people, so many Saul's in your community, in your circle of relationships, that probably will not be converted by coming to hear me preach. They may not even come to hear me preach, even if you ask them, but they may be touched, they may be impacted, they may come to faith in Jesus Christ by your love and your life and your words to them. God wants to use you, ordinary person, for his glory. This is the right way to live. It's for everyone now, here's the last thing I want you to see. Number four, and this is the hardest one. We, we need to trust God even if he calls us to suffer for Jesus. Part of what we have to face in this story is that Stephen did everything right and he ended up dead. What happened? Why didn't God do what, you know, the preachers on TV tell us? Why didn't God bless him and reward him and grow his ministry and multiply his days? Short answer is because that's not true. That's a bunch of lies, and you really should just turn that off and not listen to it. Longer answer is, I don't know. I don't know why God didn't do that. But I do know it says this in verse 58. Did you see it? Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. I get chills reading that. Just think about what this is telling us. This young man named Saul, filled with hate, is watching. And as stone after stone smashed into Stephen's face, as his body was mangled into a bloody heap. And I've never seen a stoning. I don't want to see it. It was a horrific thing. As this was all happening, Saul was listening and hearing Stephen's pleas and prayers to God to forgive the people who were brutalizing him. Saul saw the glory of God reflected on Stephen's face and something happened in Saul's heart that he never got over. You see, Stephen's blood soaking into the ground was the seed of the Apostle Paul's faith. At the end of the day, Stephen's most effective contribution to the kingdom of God came through his martyrdom. Paul was not converted by seeing Stephen delivered. He was converted by seeing Stephen full of the Holy Spirit testify to Jesus' glory in the midst of pain. Do you understand? 
in your life that the sermons you preach through your pain are louder than the ones you can ever preach through your blessings. And I don't say that because I like it. I don't want that for my life. I don't want that for my family's life. I don't want that for your life. But the Bible makes it really clear that God can use our pain to reach people in ways that just can't happen when our lives are full of blessing. Stephen got that. He knew the right way to live. He knew it's not about me. It's not about my self-actualization. It's not about me getting the respect I deserve. It's about serving. It's about giving my life away. It's about waiting on tables if that's the need. And this is so contrary to the spirit of our culture. Do you understand that everything in our culture tells us every single day, over and over again, you deserve good things. You deserve this. You deserve that. We find ourselves just absorbing that and forgetting the message that shines so clearly through the pages of the New Testament that we see so clearly in the life of Jesus and in his followers. It's not about me. It's always about God and about other people. It's not about us obtaining blessing. It's not about us walking in prosperity. It really is about us pointing other people to Jesus. I have a question I'd really like you to write down and I'd really like you to think about. Here's the question. What is it all about for you? You need to honestly ask yourself that question because a lot of people, they, they come to church with something like this in mind. They, they, they think that God is there to be a great addition to their lives. God is going to give me peace in my life. God is going to fix my family's problem. God is going to take care of my needs. And it's so easy to turn this around. And we think that God is there for us instead of us being there for God. We forget he's the creator and we're the creature. We get it upside down. Do you know how you know that it's kind of all about you in church? If you find yourself getting easily offended by other people in church, by what they say or how they don't recognize you and your abilities, it may be all about you. If you find yourself in your relationship with God kind of angry that God hasn't blessed you the way you think he should, it might be all about you. If you find in your relationship with God that there are limits to your obedience. You know, there are some of you here today, and I don't know what this is, but the Holy Spirit will remind you what it is. God has been telling you to do something for years, some of you for decades, and you have kept saying, no, you put a limit on your obedience. I'll only go this far. Maybe it's all about you. If you find that you're, you're never really financially generous, you're always trying to do as little as you can in giving away your resources or giving away your time, maybe it's really all about you and not about Jesus. You know, for some of us, it comes down to our family. You know, I already said God is a convenient way to help our family, to keep our family together. But what if God calls your child into ministry? I have seen many Christian parents over the years who say they want to love Jesus and serve Jesus, but then they get mad. They get angry when God calls their child, one of their children, into ministry. And how dare he consider even calling them into missionary service, like go around the world somewhere. They want God to keep their kids close to home and bless them and prosper them. See, where did Stephen get this idea that it's not about me, but it's always about Jesus. Where did Stephen get this courage and selflessness? Well, he got it because he was looking up to Jesus. We see it at the end of chapter 7. When he looked up into heaven, what did he see? 
And he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus stretching out nail-pierced hands to receive him. Jesus, Lord of the universe, who had given up his life for Stephen. Jesus, who had washed the feet of sinners. He washed Stephen's feet, so it would make perfect sense that Stephen would wash the feet of other people. And when Stephen prayed, Father, forgive them, where had he got that idea? Where had he heard that before? Well, Stephen is becoming to other people what Jesus had been to him. I heard someone say this recently, those who believe the gospel and behold the gospel become like the gospel. And Stephen had believed and Stephen had beheld the glorious face of Jesus and now he is like him. Luke includes this odd little detail in his vision. Stephen says, I see Jesus standing. And that's interesting because every other place in the New Testament that talks about Jesus at the throne of God talks about him sitting. But here, the Son of God stands, standing in affirmation. All these religious leaders, this, all the powerful, important people in society are calling Stephen a heretic, calling him a fool. But Jesus stands up at God's throne and says, he is mine. They can call him a heretic and a fool, but Father, before you, I say today, that one is mine. Everyone was condemning him, but heaven was commending him. Everyone was rejecting him, but heaven was receiving him. And Stephen said, with his life, I would rather have that affirmation. You see, as Stephen was dying, being stoned to death, it looked like his life was in the hands of evil. But Stephen actually was in the hands of God who was overruling all of this for his good. Jesus standing at God's hand, had not forgotten Stephen. Jesus, standing at God's right hand, was not preoccupied doing other things. Jesus was in charge of every single stone. See, Stephen didn't know it. But watching him die was the man who would become the greatest evangelist the world would ever live or ever see. Saul. God was using Stephen's death to turn Saul's life around. This is such a powerful reminder. If you are suffering today or if you find yourself in places that are difficult to obey, you need to see Jesus in the very same place. He is standing at God's throne for you. You need to see that he is in control. And just like he took what happened to Stephen and turned it around to produce the greatest Christian missionary ever, Paul, he can use your suffering for his glory and for your good. You see, you need to see Jesus as you suffer, standing in love and victory at the right hand of God and know that he is for you. The degree to which you understand Jesus' love and victory is the degree to which you will be able to endure suffering well. One more thing. This name Stephen, Stephanos in Greek, it means crown. And in that day, crowns were given to those who overcame. They were given to military generals. They were given to athletes who won their event. And we are being told that Stephen overcame this world. He won victory, not by experiencing what we would typically call blessing. He won by dying faithfully with Jesus 
his eyes fixed on Jesus, who was risen and who was reigning. God used Stephen's death for more than he would ever have dreamed. And God can use your suffering and your pain in ways you cannot even imagine. He wants to do that. You know, if you want to overcome the world, you say, how do I do that? Well, serve. It's not about you. Make it about Jesus. Submit in obedience to whatever Jesus calls you to do. If some of you right now may be called upon by God in this moment to glorify God in the midst of your trial, it could be a physical affliction, it could be an emotional affliction, and you must just pray. You must see Jesus standing for you. Say, say to Jesus, Jesus, I trust you. Help me to give you glory, whatever happens in my life. Some of you, like Stephen, have been put into situations where it is costly to obey. It may be a push to compromise standards at work. It may be even in your personal life. It may be in school where you are ridiculed for holding to the truth of God's word. Maybe you're suffering the loss of reputation that comes when you stand with God and you stand against the culture. Maybe people, they're not throwing literal stones at you, but they're throwing verbal stones at you. Those things hurt, right? That whole sticks and stone things is stupid. Never has been true, has it? But you've got to say Jesus is worth it. You've got to care more about his affirmation than you do the affirmation of other people. God may be calling you to do something sacrificial or uncomfortable. I don't know what it might be. But are you willing to allow him to use your life in whatever way he calls, even if it's painful? You know, for 2,000 years now, men and women, even boys and girls, real people who love Jesus have followed in Stephen's footsteps. And they go out, but they don't come back. Sometimes people who go out in the name of Jesus, they don't come back. It was four years ago, this last week, that a young man named Ronnie Smith who had been commissioned by a church in Texas called Austin Stone Community Church to go to the nation of Libya and to teach English, to teach history, to teach science at a high school, was living in a town, we all, a city, we all know the name. He was living in Benghazi, Libya. And he had sent his wife and family home. He was going to be coming home shortly after this for a time of some break when he was out riding his bike like he did every day just for exercise, just to be in the community. Two men saw who he was, knew what he was doing there, and they shot him to death. He didn't come home. Not everybody who goes out comes back. Sometimes to glorify Jesus, we we must suffer for Jesus. And God never promises us that it's all going to turn out in the way that, that we might hope. Here's the question. Have you come to the place in your life where you can say, Jesus, it's not about me. It's always about you. I will do anything you tell me to do. I will go anywhere you tell me to go. I will suffer if that's what you want. I just want to follow you. In the end, that's what Stephen does. In the end, it's only our confidence in the risen Jesus that gives us the ability to obey in that way. I just want to ask today, God doesn't call most of us to give our lives in martyrdom. God does call all of us to give our lives in obedience. 
Would you be willing to ask yourself, where in my life am I thinking this is about me? Where do I need to repent? Where do I need to start saying, God, it's about you, it's about your son Jesus? Where do I, where do I need to obey whatever the cost? Stephen shows us the right way to live. He shows us the right way to die. And he's an ordinary person, just like all of us. If he did it in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can as well. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, and we're going to pray. And as we do, would you be willing to ask yourself where you have made this life about you? Would you be willing to ask yourself where you need to make this life about Jesus? where your heart needs to change. Father God, we look to you and we pray to you knowing that we only can pray to you because of what Jesus, your son, has done for us on the cross. Lord, forgive us for the times and the places and the ways that we have made it about us, that we have been unwilling to serve, unwilling to sacrifice. Lord, may you use us as we make ourselves available to you in whatever ways you might call to serve you and obey you. Lord, would you use us to reach this world that so desperately needs to know your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help this picture, this story, not to leave our minds quickly. Help us to be able to think about it and ponder it today and through this week. Use it to change our lives, Lord. That's what your word is for. And we pray these things now, all of them, in the name of Jesus, your son, and all God's people said.